0: Welcome everybody to the University of Applied Research and Development's Educators Podcast. I'm delighted to have Dr. Don Brown with us this morning. He is an instructional technologist. He has had many leadership roles, highly creative. I'm looking forward to hearing how he's gonna challenge us today to think deeper about the center of our role as education professionals. Welcome, Don.
1: Thank you, I'm very happy to be here.
0: Tell us about you and what you've been doing. Our chat before, The chat has been really interesting, so please carry on.
1: Well, uh, I'll do the short time capsule of uh, my experience so far. Uh, So I started out as a music teacher and um, played trombone, sang in a song and dance troupe, sang opera, background chorus kind of thing. Um, After that, I got my Master of Arts in teaching, and I took an elementary position then because I realized through teaching music that I actually connected more with that age group. Luckily, music was K-12, so that was, that was really a good thing to find out. I did that a long time, and then um, later, uh, I took on the challenges of being a school administrator. Uh, I opened a virtual statewide school in one state um, after having been an assistant principal. I was principal of a bricks-and-mortar school as well. Um, Most recently, though, in the last 10 years or so, I would call myself an instructional technologist, um, even though I've been called um, an instructional coach or a coordinator. Um, But my goal has been to find out ways to take this idea of blended learning, which is the best use of face-to-face teaching combined with the best use of online teaching or computer-based teaching, how that dynamic works for the student and for the teacher, with kind of the center at where is the motivation, um, where's the creativity, and how can a teacher find themselves in a balance between face-to-face and online teaching, or what, you know, it could all be face-to-face, but you're using technology, right? And so um, that's kind of what I've been examining in the research and presenting at conferences is, What motivates people in a blended learning environment, whether they are the teacher or the student?
0: Mm. Really interesting. I didn't know that you'd launched your own school in the state, uh, a virtual school. I have experienced launching a bricks and mortar school and being the board chairman, and and I found it invigorating, exciting, and challenging. From your perspective, because you're coming from a different perspective as a virtual school. So what were the... What were some of the big challenges that you had to wrestle with when establishing a virtual school?
1: Yeah, um, it was quite an adventure. I had been an assistant principal in Oregon, where I live now, and, um, and the, the school, uh, a lot of statewide schools, statewide virtuals in the United States are sponsored by a corporation because the corporation provides the learning management system and the content that's in the learning management system. So in my case, the the corporation said, hey, you've done pretty well here in Oregon. We want you to open a new school in South Carolina. And so packed everything up, moved over to South Carolina. The thing that's similar to opening a bricks and mortar school would be that I did get to interview all the staff and hire the staff. And you know how exciting that can be because you're trying to put together a team of people that complement each other so that you can let them – develop their unique strengths even more and run with that for the betterment of the school. So that was kind of the same, but then we're all in an office building (laughs) sitting together in cubicles. I do have an office, but everyone else has kind of a workstation. And so, uh, and then uh, we had so much data that a bricks and mortar school would never have. We knew how long the kids were online. We knew how many lessons they were completing. We got feedback from the parents that was all written. And so it was kind of a tightly knit system. The other thing that was really different was I had to work directly with the State Department of Education to get the school credential because it was such a new thing. And normally as a principal, you're dealing with your own central office. I was dealing with the State Department of Education to make sure that we were dotting our I's and crossing our T's as far as all the requirements that they had. Once the school was up and running, it it felt pretty much like a bricks and mortar school in that we had special events. Of course, we had to travel to all all the corners of the state to see the kids, to do statewide testing. But at the end of the year, we had a wonderful uh, arts festival in the state capital, and we encouraged as many families to come as we could. And so the students presented art and they had some social structured time together. It was really fun.
0: That sounds great. How did you find it challenging? We were talking about um, what's the center, the center for teachers. What was your focus with the virtual school with increasing that recognition of the center that you thought was important?
1: Yeah, so what I want anyone who's studying education to think about is wherever you are and whatever kind of school you're in, what is at the center in other words um the reason i was so excited to be part of the virtual school movement is that the virtual school movement is focused on individualization and so we had a student that finished first grade in december they went through all of the content they got high scores and we could let them move right on to second grade in december well to me that was huge that was huge that's like This student is getting it, and we're a match for that student, right? And there were other students that we weren't such a great match for because they had distractions or weren't as independent or whatever they were. But what drew me to that was the center of that school was individualizing the curriculum. Sure, we still had to teach the same lessons, but we could go at any pace. We could go at any time of day. The students could log in any time of day. and They could study whether they were at home or whether they were in Bermuda, Right. So any path, any place, any time, any space, that's that kind of education.
0: Wow. So the individualization you found was the center. In traditional schools, obviously, there's a few more challenges around timetabling and all of that. Um, because you have experience with PYP, that curriculum, I, that's not big. Uh, in many countries around the world. So could you just share some of the differences that you saw and some of the benefits maybe with the, um, with the IB curriculum?
1: Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, it's strange because throughout my career, I would find these things and they would resonate with me and I'd want to go, oh, I wish I'd only found that 20 years ago because I really like what's at the center. So if I were studying uh, to get a master's now, I would wanna be really clear on what my center was so I could look for educational opportunities that were a really good match. For example, um, going to the virtual school was one step in the right direction for me because it was individualized. The next step in the right direction was the primary years program from International Baccalaureate because they focus on the student as the center, and they also focus on making the student an inquirer—they are in charge. They're the ones asking the questions. They're the ones guiding the investigation, and the teacher is creating a an instructional model that says, "Okay, they have uh, they have like six broad themes over the course of the entire year, and they're very broad. Like, where are we in place and time, and who are we? So." the teacher kind of sets a stage for the student to be reflective on that question. Within that, they may say, okay, we're studying where we are in place and time. So coronavirus, hello, we're going to study the science of (laughs) the science of vaccines and stuff like that. And one student may say, you know what, this makes me interested in the next thing up, which might be microbiology. And so I'm going to study where we are with microbiology as well. And that's going to go into my independent portfolio. So, it's another, it's another form of individualization that takes a, a, set, a set of guided inquiry questions that can be within a fairly set curriculum. But the purpose is to create a reflective inquirer who can be in charge of their own learning.
0: Yeah, that's very powerful.
1: You know, I, every, and I have to say, I went to several of their trainings over the years. I was at two different PYP schools they have a model for professional development that is totally constructivist for adults. What a breath of fresh air. Instead of a PowerPoint <laughs> and taking notes, right? I'm like, oh, they want me to do this work. I have to actually construct the model of this for this workshop that I'm in. And guess what? I'm working with other teachers who are PYP from all over the world. It is. It's a wonder. It's a wonderful wonderful world of education, Um, and it is international. And uh, there again, if you are uh, a natural inquirer kind of person, and if you like to travel, it's the ticket home.
0: Right. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Being a New Zealand educator, I find that inquiry is really at the heart of the curriculum in New Zealand, the perspective, the pedagogy. And what I've heard and what I've seen of the IB program, it really is that. And so I think it's a great, a great system, a great option for schools that wish to go that way of individualization and creativity and inquiry. <clears throat> now, as a um, past state assessment specialist, tell us about that role and, and what you got to do in that role.
1: Okay. I kind of stumbled into it, so, um, but the stumbling sort of made sense. So I had been, a, a, I had been teaching a fourth, fifth blended classroom. And I had a, a strong interest, this was fairly early on, in doing teacher professional development. And so the district central office said, okay, we will tap you to be a trainer for data teams way early on, before they were professional learning communities and all that. It was just how teachers looked at data. And so I got some special training. It might have been Stiggins at the time. I'm not sure. There's a whole a couple different flavors of data-based what did they call it? Data-driven teaching, data-driven education. Anyway, so I, I got some training and then I was, got together with a group and we developed professional development for our large district. Well, then I became a data guy. <laughs> okay. okay, so what goes hand in glove with data is assessment. And so I was getting more and more involved in what does the DRA reading assessment measure well? compared to a multiple choice assessment measure well. And then I ended up getting interested enough in it that I applied to get a a PhD in ed leadership that had a focus in psychometrics. In other words, trying to measure what students know. And uh, it was in science, which was even better because I have a lifelong hobby in science in rocketry and plants and that kind of thing. So here I was, uh, the state science assessment uh, specialist for the Oregon Department of Ed. And we were doing something really weird, or not weird, but innovative at that time. And we were using this kind of math called um, Roche modeling. And what it does is it estimates probabilities. And so by estimating the probability of a student getting their correct answer, you can weight the value of each question. Furthermore, they had developed the statistics far enough out that you could could take the the statistical analysis of the wrong answers, and you could put in, say you put in one that was a common common misconception, you would expect to see that get a certain statistic, you'd expect the answer to get a certain statistic. And so by looking at those, you could say whether the test item was really measuring what you wanted or not. And so... It was an awesome job. I actually, uh, I got an innovation award from the governor's office because I turned it into a professional development opportunity for teachers to write test items. And so we would go through the process and talk about sensitivity for uh, all kinds of like um, special needs students and different cultures. You have to do cultural sensitivity screening. But -hmm. the bottom line was teachers learn better about how to measure what students know. And that was the part that I could buy into.
0: Right. You've had a very varied career and different experiences where you've led in different situations. Um, For our educators, we have uh, people that are directors of very large schools. We have principals of smaller schools, heads of departments and aspiring leaders who are teachers in the classroom. So what would you say would be two or three things that as they're building their career and moving forward that you'd encourage them to do, learn or experience?
1: Yeah. You know, it's so easy here. We got so invested in the common core. I mean, on one hand, it is fantastic that everyone has kind of the same language and the same roadmap, but then we ended up testing it in a way that is far too far too detailed. We tried to make one test do too many things. And so I would say, um, don't ever forget, you get caught up in these things, testing and, and keeping your lesson plans up to date and keeping your grade book up to date. Oh, my gosh, I, grade book, yeah. Um, but if you know what is the center for you, what is the important part, what gives you passion, and you focus on that aspect of your job as a teacher, um, teaching is fundamentally a creative process absolutely creative and if you don't see it as creative then you're not doing it right in my my humble opinion um because you when you have a classroom and those kids come in or if they're even adult learners in college you can create a fantastic experience or you can create a really kind of drudgery experience but the creativity that you bring to the table is what's going to make the difference so for example we've talked about the pyp program um, gaming. There there's some fantastic software out there that will turn your classroom into worlds of Warcraft. Um, one, my favorite one, I'm going to even say it. It's called Classcraft. I've used it with a number of grade levels. And what is special about Classcraft? And I'm speaking in gaming generally here, is that you can have the students in groups that are social. You are intentionally putting their social pressures on each other, their relationships, you're using those to create success in the classroom. Some teachers would say, I don't want that kid with that kid because they really like each other. Well, I would say, no, those are the two that you want together, because they're going to work their tails off to beat each other, As and one maybe one's a warrior and one's a mage. And guess what? The mage can save the warrior if the warrior falls in battle. Okay, So that interdependence and that Bond building is part of gaming that I really, really like. It's not just about getting points. It's about using gaming to create uh, opportunities for relationships. And those relationships can be put to use to get motivation. And so ultimately, gamification can be a motivator. Um, The other thing that I really want a clear message about while we're on software, that's a software, um, there's really clearly two flavors of software out there. And you need to be a, a smart consumer in your purpose for software. Now, there's a lot of software out there that will say, oh, you just, the student sits in front of it, it gives them a placement test, and then off they go, lesson by lesson by lesson. Well, that is super. That's amazing. There's a book that was written decades ago called Education in Ecstasy. Uh, The author's last name was Leonard. He had this view. This was, I think, in the 60s where a toddler would come into an education dome and they would sit at a computer terminal. They would put a helmet on. The helmet would read their emotional state and then call up the appropriate instructional lessons on the computer based on emotion and where they were academically. Well, we're on the verge of being able to do that now. But the teacher has to be the one that gauges the emotional connection. Wow. So, yeah, I know. You've got to read that book if you haven't. I highly recommend it. It's a short book, too. Um, so if you take things like that software, which I would call diagnostic prescriptive or adaptive software, that's a tool for you. Is there any juice in that for kids? Usually no. Usually no. Now, granted, just here's <laughs> if they just have a customizable customizable avatar, you're miles ahead. Just that one thing is very motivating for kids. Does it have a little store where they can buy things? Yeah, that's motivating. But what's the most motivating? Can they challenge the student across the room in their software as an avatar to a match or a game to improve their scores? Now that's that's really where we're headed. Again, leveraging the relationships along with the adaptive nature of the software. So for computer adaptive software, that's what I'm looking for. Now, in terms of all the other kinds of software that's out there, and there's so much to choose from, I would say if it's not adaptive, and if it's not diagnostic and adaptive, it must be creative. So it could be your video creation software. It could be your writing software but it should be something that the student can own. Um, my, now as a New, New Zealander, you're right by Australia. I'm sure you know Martin Doug Yamas, <laughs> the founder of Moodle, or at least you've known of him. Absolutely. Um, and Moodle, yeah, Moodle is, I've, I have a picture of myself with Martin, at a moot. Um, but I think what would be so, so powerful, instead of Google Docs, which go away when, <laughs> when the student loses their uh, school email account, what if we had permanent Moodle accounts for students that they could keep their whole lives and they learn how to care and nurture their Moodle instance and they keep all of their portfolios, all of their examples of work, their history and all of that in their own personal Moodle. As Moodle grows and changes, they learn about software. Wouldn't that be a great thing? The only thing you'd have to add then is some kind of social media platform so that that would be part of the mix too but um so something that gives students kind of a control over their collection of evidence their collection of work and then and something very creative like video and um, even programming can be very uh creative if you get the right robot things and stuff like that okay so i just i think that 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 a lot of teachers don't make the distinction between the heavy lift software that is diagnostic prescriptive. What is the purpose? What is the center versus what is the purpose? What is the center of the creative software I'm using?
0: Fantastic. Don, this has been incredibly interesting and we've covered a range of different topics. I want to really thank you for your time. Thank you for staying up late, I would imagine, to be able to do this for us. It's gonna be something that we're gonna talk about in our group and in our class as well. Very, very interesting. Thank you so much for your time.
1: It's been an honor, really.